from AM and FM stations around the country. Welcome to the Small Business Administration award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, Jim Beach. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. It is Thursday the 15th of February. I hope you had a fantastic Valentine evening last night. I hope you all got a kiss, a little bit of chocolate, maybe some flowers for the ladies. Is that sexist to say? I don't know. You know, that's a great point. We don't know the rules anymore. I still like to give flowers and open doors. You know, I'll open doors for a man too, because it's polite. And I get accused of being sexist when I open a door for, I just don't understand. The thing that bothers me about so many of the discussions we're having in the world today is the hypocrisy. And that's why I'm so excited for my guest today, Wayne Elliott. Absolutely one of the coolest entrepreneurs I've ever met. But the fact that he is giving back in ways that so many other people are complaining about. So Wayne, despite all of his entrepreneurship, is a real environmentalist at heart, but he is a conservative. And I think what's so interesting though, is that he is out there doing more for the environment than the people who are complaining. So many people complain and that's their part of the equation. They don't actually make the world better. They just complain. They, oh, the world's going to die. Well then then they get on their jet airplane and go and talk about the world's going to die somewhere else, right? I was so hypocritical that some of the movie stars like Leonardo tell me that I'm ruining the world. And then they go get on a 200 foot super yacht, which I think they should be allowed to do. There's nothing wrong with that. And then tell me that I'm ruining the world. And then they get on their airplane. What the hell? Their private airplane with a, a, uh, fuel consumption that in an environmental footprint that I would never have in my life. I can't stand that hypocrisy. I had a neighbor who very, very liberal guy used to work at CNN, thought everything they said was true and was saying that I was a bad person because I am using too much electricity and fuel and I'm not uh, liberal enough. And he and I would argue all of the time, most of it, uh, friendly and just fun banter. But then this environmentalist who told me that I wasn't being environmentally conscious enough because I was heating my pool for his children, by the way, he came up and said that I'm a bad hypocrite, that I'm ruining the world. And then he went off and bought a Ford 250 four wheel drive pickup truck so that he can drive on the concrete two miles to work every day. And the three years since he's bought the truck, it hasn't been off the concrete, but he needed an F two fifty, the, you know, the big thing. The only one bigger is the dually. He didn't get that. And his fuel consumption is eight miles a gallon 
I drive a tiny little Toyota Tercel that gets 40 miles to the gallon. It's paid for. And I feel like it's hypocritical to say that I'm the bad guy by heating my pool. And so <laughs> anyway, I don't like the hypocrisy. I'm going to stand up for what I believe in my actions. I'm proud that I drive a small car with as small a ecological footprint as possible. I feel like that's the least I can do. I'm not going to go get a Ford 250 and then drive it on the concrete. If I needed a truck like that for my farm, then maybe that makes sense. But you know what? My friend doesn't have a farm and I don't have a farm. So you don't need a pickup truck. And then to go and talk to somebody else about their car choice, their pool choice, it's just hypocritical. It drives me crazy. And that's why I love Wayne. Wayne is solving the world's problems better than the environmentalist. He's out there making money and making lithium disappear better than anyone else. And we talk about this a lot. California has not done what Wayne has done. The environmentalists have not done what Wayne has done. I'll be back in just a second to introduce you again to Wayne Elliott, entrepreneurial superstar and someone who cares about the environment. I'll be right back. Ooh, I got that out of my system. I feel better now. <laughs> well, that's a, that's, a, that's a wonderful question, actually, Jim. Oh, my gosh. I love the opportunity to do this. Thank you, Jim. Wow, that's, that's, a, that's a great one. You know, that is a phenomenal question. That's a great question, and, and I don't have a great answer. That's a great question. Oh, that is such a loaded question. And that's actually a really good question. Good for Startups Radio. We are back. And again, thank you so much for being with us. We only have one guest today. Again, Wayne Elliott is with us. He is an incredible entrepreneur running some fantastic businesses in the recycling space, both with ships and batteries. An amazing story. And I'm excited to welcome him back to the show. Wayne, how are you doing today? Always well, thanks. How are you, Jim? I am well. Good to have another talk with you. Today, let's talk about some of the business uh, businesses, okay? Sure. All right, so I I'd like to go, I guess, one by one and start off with the ship demo business. How did you get into that? I, I understood that your father was in the industry, but not the owner. Is that correct? Tell me the whole story of how you got into that. I know it involved your dad. Yeah, it sure did. Uh, my dad started a ship recycling company for a family in Hamilton, Ontario, that were in the scrap metal business and in the they had a foundry making brass and bronze ingots. Uh, they had a, a secondary steel division. So my dad, for Mrs. Levy, was the name, opened the the uh, shipbreaking yard, and he was self-taught, uh, and he did that until she died. And I believe 1969, uh, they were very close. She had sons, and, and uh, the one son my dad wasn't close with, but Mrs. Levy always sided with my father, so uh, they got along great. When she died, he, he left. So he, And I had my summertime experiences in that yard, doing terrible stuff, breaking concrete around the, 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 the stern of the ships with a, uh, uh, pick and uh, sledgehammer and so forth and learn how to burn to torch steel and I learned how to run a magnet crane in that yard 
by all before I was 16. So, it, and I kind of fell in love with the ships. I thought they were pretty cool. Uh, even though the, the ones that were there were old and, but you know, self unloading booms and wheelhouses and captain's quarters. And I just liked it. Uh, so we started in 1973, uh, company with a view to ship breaking. And there was quite a recession on at that time that was bad enough that the Transport Canada gave, uh, commercial vessel owners an extra year on their five-year certificates. The business had, had gone that bad. It was a bad, bad recession, that one in the early 70s. Oh, yeah, sure. And, that was the gas recession and all the oil embargoes. Oh, you bet. Yeah, lineups at gas stations, and it was something else. Um, um, so the government gave the ships an extra year, and so we didn't... Uh, we didn't break ships in 1973, but the next year we started and, and scrapped a U.S. submarine in your country. We're, we're Canadians uh, in Charleston Harbor, the USS Barracuda. And um, we had a couple of fellows there worked with us, and four of us came from Hamilton, Ontario, plus my dad. And uh, we scrapped that submarine, the USS Barracuda, right in Charleston Harbor. And, um, so that was the, that was the first ship breaking project that my family did, um, you know, on our own, so to speak, when we were owners. And how were you and, able uh, to buy that submarine? I mean, that it must've cost a million bucks as our last discussion. They're quite expensive. How'd you afford that? No, it, this was, this was over 50, you know, it was 50 years ago. So, right. um, uh, it, if I remember right, it was something like $70,000. And the submarines were just uh, a great deal of non-ferrous metals in them, plus the batteries, the giant lead-acid batteries. And uh, so there's a lot of uh, the weight that's worth more than just the steel or iron scrap. And uh, it was hard work, and it's, it's submarines are tricky because, of course, they're meant to dive fast when they want to dive. So if you cut into that outer skin or into a pipe in the wrong place, you know, she's, you'll start to sink the vessel. And uh, so my dad did a lot of studying of the plans. We carefully dismantled it afloat at Charleston off a wooden dock. And uh, I ran the crane. And, uh, uh, yeah, it was a good job. It was a good job. We had, there was what they called the, 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 the ghetto, I guess, across the street. Uh, and uh, we had uh, three or four fellows from there work with us, and uh, um, yeah, that was the start of the ship breaking as a family, was the USS Barracuda, kind of ironic. I was 20 years more trying to get more involved in the U.S. program and the mothball fleet, and uh, just just never made it. We, we won two carriers once on the West Coast, and Vice President Al Gore put a moratorium on ship breaking that held for four years. And so the, the, the day before we were to sign the lease in Astoria, Oregon, uh, he made this law, I suppose, or moratorium, they called it. No ship breaking in the United States. It held for four years. And, you know, he wasn't wrong. There was a lot of pollution that had happened on every coast, on every one of your coasts. And, uh, one culprit in particular that just seemed to go from, he called himself the godfather of U.S. shipbreaking, and 
in, in a sense, he sure was. Uh, he once had 17 Navy vessels um, uh, on the East Coast of the United States, and uh, they had lead, many of them had lead ingot ballasts, and uh, of course had manganese bronze propellers. And So he went after, this is something you do not do in shipbreaking if you're doing it efficiently and properly. He went after all of those things that are more valuable than the steel and spilled some chemicals and ended up killing a man in the North Carolina yard. And then uh, um, he ended up getting shut down. The Navy towed those 17 vessels back to the Navy yard, and he still bid and got more ships <laughs> and ended up in Brownsville, Texas. So, um, uh, but I, And we had trouble getting in. It took big money, bonding, and so forth, and then... The, those two carriers, and then they, they the, the government never officially awarded them because of Vice President Gore's decision. And uh, we've scrapped lots of U.S. flag vessels, especially from the lake. Uh, probably close to half the vessels we've recycled would be U.S. flagged from the, the Great Lakes fleet, fleets on the American side. And uh, we've done business with them all. But uh, so then we, it wasn't until 1983 that we moved to Port Colburn, our current main shipbreaking yard, and uh, ended up the battery recycling businesses there, and uh, one scrapyard there, and one down the peninsula on Lake Ontario. And uh, that's, that's what we've done for quite a number of years, and then expanded to both, both coasts. But uh, yeah, it's interesting that my first real, other than those summertime jobs as a kid, uh, but I, I couldn't say that I completely saw a ship recycled in the, the summer months I would work there. I just, I, I just can't recall to tell you the truth, but I'm, I'm thinking not, but I, I never saw one from start to finish. So, uh, and in those days they used to burn the copper wire and open fires to get the insulation off. And I'll never forget the bad taste I had in my throat from that. Uh, terrible polluting thing, you know, it's basically amazing. Putting you don't poison. have cancer everywhere. Well, we, you know, those, once on both sides of the border, the Environmental Protection Act came in, uh, I think it was 1970 in Canada, and I think it was about then in the United States, where there was, for the first time, Jim, rules. There was no rules. In, in Hamilton Harbor, for example, the mills and chemical company, they had pipes going into Hamilton Bay, which is connected to Lake Ontario, heavily polluted to this day. Uh, that's, you know, just running through the pipe and into the lake or ocean, it's gone. Well, it's not gone. You know, we learned it isn't gone. So all of that's been stopped, of course. Uh, thank goodness. Uh, we were the only creatures on Earth that you know what, where we eat. We poop where we eat. And uh, we're the only creatures that have done that. Pollute our own environment. Yeah, I've been So anyway. Just, keep going. I was going to say the the, the uh, I've always loved the ships. I'm, I'm I suppose in some ways I'm still intrigued with them. It's quite a quite a piece of self-contained equipment a ship is, um, and uh, so third generation now the family. There are certain family members that are keenly interested in it and uh, and are working it and. Uh, we're kind of proud. We're the oldest active shipbreaker in the world, um, even though most of our shipbreaking has been here in Canada. Um, 
over the, I guess it'd be 70, 70 years now or something as a family. So we're the oldest active shipbreakers. And uh, touch wood, we, you know, we're proud of our record. Um, we're the first uh, ISO certified shipbreaker in the world. By quite a few years, too, we were certified in December 2000, ISO 14001. That's the environmental certification. And uh, all our companies have been since then, but the, the, uh, the rules here were much, much stricter. The, uh, the rules are stricter here in Canada than they are in the United States. Uh, did you go after the ISO certification of your own accord, or did they make you do that? Was that your choice? No, we did that ourselves. It took us two years. And it's, it's not cheap because there's annual internal audits, annual audits from a certification uh, company that we've been with all these 23 years now or 24 years. Um, so it's, it costs, uh, we thought that it would be a requirement and, and we wanted to jump the gun. It wasn't that we had a whole bunch of extra money to spend. We just believed that, and being in that battery business, you know, heavily, well, all the worst of heavy metals and reactive metals and lithium and so forth, lead, all the heavy metals that are bad for you, um, so the government, our, our Ministry of Environment loved working with us because we were the only one in their sector that dealt with all this stuff. And then on the ships, the mercury, the PCBs, the asbestos, the oil, the sludge, the, the waste oil, uh, uh, all of it, you know, um, sometimes the paint. We once did the uh, uh, two fish trawlers for the government that were abandoned in Newfoundland that had uh, the refrigerator rooms were painted with paint that contained PCBs. So the whole bulkheads had to be taken out and shipped to a uh, uh, treatment facility in Western Canada. That's a long way from us. We're in Eastern Canada. Um, so all, the, all some of the nastiest stuff, really, we've dealt with in our business. And uh, so you have to do it properly. You have to protect your people. But uh, I was involved, you know, as a young person, as a kid, really, and saw, you know what they would do instead of taking the internal furnishings out, the wood and the desks and the flooring and the wallboard and all the rest of it, they would uh, wait until the wind was blowing in the right direction. This was with the blessing of my father's friends, the deputy chief and the chief, fire chief in Hamilton, Ontario. When the wind was blowing out towards the lake, they could light the front end of the ship on fire and burn out all the accommodations. And uh, I remember seeing that once, and then the police and the government did a training in our yard where they actually did light the front of a vessel on fire so they could do films and training on how to fight the fire. They just left an awful mess. <laughs> but uh, but they used to do it on purpose, Jim, to clean this, all that stuff out. It was as cheap as labor was in those days. It was cheaper just to burn it, I guess. And uh, so we sure had some polluting ways. Uh, now, in other parts of the world, like Asia, there's still all kinds of terrible things going on. And uh, where there are rules, they're not being enforced. And safety has been a nightmare. And so... 
it's uh it's harder to compete but there's only one way to do that business uh and that's as safe as you can do it and that's what we'll try and do we need to take a quick break but we will be right back with wayne Radio hopes you will reach out to us if you have any questions or comments or if you need help with your business at any stage, from concepts to exit. Jim accepts all connections on LinkedIn. He tweets from at Entrepreneur Jim and he responds to emails at james.beach at att.net. Thanks for listening and we hope you enjoy the show. We are back again speaking with Wayne Elliott. Which countries have the absolute worst conditions? Vietnam, Thailand, Bangladesh, Bangladesh. Yeah. Okay. That's not surprising. Then, uh, the, the world's largest, uh, in India. And I would say, uh, not near as, not to near the extent of polluting, but in Turkey, uh, they beach the vessels and, the the, the, the rear end, the stern, as it's called of the vessel, the back end, is where the largest concentration of wastes are, fuel tanks, uh, oil tanks, machinery spaces, you know, if there's boilers, boilers, asbestos. The, the worst of the waste is in the, in the after end or the stern end. Well, in Turkey, they, the stern end just floats around with the current. They've only got a hold of the bow of these ships, and there could be 25 of them over there at a time. One, one yard is certified, and he supplies the other yards with ships. And uh, the steel mill, loving the, the ship plate, they've all got a good deal on, on their ship plate. I mean, you can sell that anywhere in the world. Uh, but, you know, it's a, the risk that's there, uh, you know, in a, in a uh, monsoon or a hurricane, I mean, those ships would be all over the place and the environmental. And they, so it's just not nowhere near our standards of, of Canada and the United States. And I don't know of anywhere that's uh, tougher than Canada. Um, safety, environmental, all of it. They're, they're, uh, yeah, they're very, very serious, uh, and they're they're the authorities in, in businesses like ours. So we've always had to make sure that we get along with them. It's it's a terrible thing to get on the bad side of those folks um, because they're getting paid anyway, and you're not while you're spending time with them or doing things that they insist you do to remedy a situation. So important to do your best to do it right from the start, depending on, and I think that applies to any business really, Jim, but of course it's far different if you have a print shop or a, a Hamburg stand than what we're talking about right now. But, uh, uh, it wouldn't matter if you were in the restaurant business or at a Hamburg stand, you'd want to make sure you weren't in Dutch with the health department and, whoever else you might be answering to the city for your license. And, uh, because when things go wrong, when you do something that you don't have authority to do, or you, you breach whatever authority you have under a license, it's, it's nothing but cost, trouble, time and stress. So, you know, people can't appreciate it if they haven't do it you know, right ever in the first been through place. it. Pardon me. Do it right in the first place. Yeah, my dad was big on that, Jim, because anything I did, 
as he would say, half-assed. Didn't matter if it was washing the dishes, cleaning up the kitchen, cutting the lawn, what it was. But he, whenever I did that, not do the thorough job, wipe everything down, uh, I got to do it again. And the same with cutting the lawn. And I just realized that, Chase, you don't have to be a genius. The best thing to do is just do it right the first time. And, it, it, you know, of course, that's, that's what you want to do. And you want to stay out of trouble, any kind of trouble, because the, the government people, this is what they're paid to do, to do their jobs and enforce the law and do whatever to you that is due process. But it's nothing but grief and aggravation for you and your reputation can suffer. And so I'd say that's job one. It's almost like, you know, if you want to, if you want to, uh, apply, if you want to be uh, a business that has some longevity and succeeds, then that's, that's definitely the first place to start. Do everything right to the best of your ability. Now the battery that, or the lithium battery recycling that you do, did that grow out of the battery recycling that you had to do for the ships is am I? No. Okay. How did no, we started with the batteries? I started very young. I was trying to find a way to make a living. And I started with car batteries and me and my friend who's still my dear friend today, former teammate and works with us now in the last six or eight years. We got two hatchets, two little axes, and broke the tops off of uh, eight or nine tons of lead acid car batteries. Yeah, that's right. And the acid spilled out on my gravel driveway and all that. And Anyway, we, we did this and shook the lead plates and the lead mud into a lugger box, and I took that to Toronto to the smelter. Came home and told my mother, Jesus, there's like $180 difference between the cost of doing all that and what I can get paid in Toronto for a load like that. I think I think I can make a living at this, Ma. I should have I had somebody give me a stern talking to right then and there, Jim, and say, wait a minute, there's easier ways than this. But anyway, that's how it actually started way, way back then, uh, whatever that is, 50-something years ago. And uh, uh, But this progressed into, you know, I was so proud of uh, our people and uh, uh, the fellow that uh, was president for the last, I don't know, I'm not sure really, uh, 15 years at least. Um the processes they've invented, they built them, invented them in-house, built them in-house. And the main product from recycling those uh, TV remote-type batteries, those double A's and triple A's, lantern batteries and so forth, the main product, 60% of the weight of all those batteries, goes to the United States and is used as a micronutrient additive with fertilizer. And with 30 pounds of our black mass, apparently through the process with the fertilizer companies. Uh, they, they, um, I think they leach it, and it's mixed with their fertilizer anyway. And they, they, you see it has uh, iron, potassium, zinc, and magnesium. And so 60% of the battery is, is what... 60% of the battery is that black mass. And with 30 pounds of that on an acre, growers have got as much as an extra 20 bushels of corn per acre. And uh, the corn is used for ethanol uh, in the fuel, but uh, nonetheless. So we, once we established that with these fine people in the United States for 20 years, we've been dealing with them. We know the families behind the companies, and 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 same with them. 
when they've come here. So we've done great business with them, very great spirit of cooperation and trust with each other. And uh, we've made this work. We've turned tens of thousands of tons of what used to go in the municipal landfills into a micronutrient additive for, for growing uh, corn and so forth. And then, of course, the steel jacket was recycled 100%, and that's, that's another 20% or 25 of the battery's weight, overall weight. And then there was the paper and plastic and uh, moisture, which we, we uh, didn't landfill that either. Ontario wouldn't allow us to, so we've, we paid extra, and it was used by a waste energy plant in Niagara Falls, New York, where they converted that waste to electricity by safely burning it. Um, you know, they have these plants around now. They're called waste energy, and they're, they're an efficient way to make, uh, to make power. So there wasn't an ounce of these batteries uh, ever landfilled, and uh, we had the best demonstrated technology in the world for uh, recycling the alkaline batteries. And it was, you know, it was hard. It was <laughs> because we were kind of pioneers, and uh, uh, I actually went uh, over 20 years losing money at that business. Uh, because there was no there was no legislation. Ontario was the first Canadian province to make it into legislation that there had to be batteries collected, the consumer batteries, and we got the contract with the province and uh, and grew it into. We were responsible for growing it. Getting, we had five thousand two hundred sites in Ontario where you could leave your batteries, your old batteries, and uh, we got up to fifty four percent of the market at our at our height. Um, 54% of all the batteries sold, we had collected the spent, that many, 54% of that many spent batteries. And, um, and that, that was about, I think it was about 12,000 tons a year of those, Jim, those little wee, uh, batteries. All, uh, hand sorted on tables built in house, conveyor tables uh, built in house and designed in house, ergonomic. Ladies and men sorting batteries, and uh, uh, yeah, so it was quite a quite an operation, and uh, uh, I can assure you, much uh, more knowledgeable and educated people than me were involved in uh, the engineering, and I got to understand a lot of things, and then have my two cents worth to throw in, and, and so forth. But uh, yeah, it was a great experience for me. The, what I learned uh, as well. Uh, through some of these great professionals we worked with. And how much does that business do a year now in terms of dollars? I think that business was doing, um, I think the business was doing 12 or $13 million a year in, in business. And you say was, and did you, does it still we, exist? We sold the, uh, we sold the, um, uh, not the whole company, but we sold the assets and the battery recycling. Um, most of the battery recycling assets, uh, the, the company, our company still owns the site and leases it to the company that bought them. And, uh, uh, yeah, the manufacturers have been extremely uncooperative. And, uh, um, so we, we were, I think we were lucky to get out of it. It's, it's a shame what they've, what they've gotten away with really to demote recycling. Uh, you know, when 100% of these were going into municipal landfills, unprotected municipal landfills, via the household kitchen catcher or garbage can, 
uh, like it was done for years. There's over a quarter million tons of batteries a year. That's that's uh, 10 of the big ships that I recycle, Jim. 10 of those a year gets buried in municipal landfills. And even though it's a small percentage, tiny, a fraction of 1% of landfill materials, it's responsible for over 80% of all heavy metals in landfills. So that's what got me into it. I, 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 had, I had sons. I, I'd hoped to have grandchildren. Well, you know, what are we doing here? And that was really what got me into that business then to go into this. That's why I lost money all those years I was telling you about. I was going to ask uh, that. Why was, were you willing to take a loss for 20 years? Are you that strong of an environmentalist? You're stronger of an environmentalist than any environmentalist I've ever met, Wayne. You put millions of your own dollars into this as opposed to these people that just bitch about the environment. You're actually doing something. Well, we did, and you know, I'm not trying to claim it was smart. A lot of people would say you were 15 years too early with that idea, and they, they wouldn't be wrong. Uh, we scuffled along with the companies who wanted to be green, and uh, it was actually torturous, honestly. The, the people like U.S. Energy Department from the United States would come up to audit us and spend a day or two in the boardroom with a half a dozen of us and then send us two barrels of batteries that, the total bill was a thousand dollars, so it was just and and but and yet, and I've got to say, a fabulous reputation, an absolute pristine reputation in the world. It's a smaller world than you think in the battery uh, market, the battery business, and the recycling efforts are pathetic in most areas in the in the world, and uh, and now they're getting that way again in Ontario. But the the folks that took over our operations. Uh, they're very aggressively uh, uh, growing the business, and uh, uh, they have the financial wherewithal of uh, wherewithal to uh, uh, well to go the course till these these uh, battery manufacturers do what they're supposed to do, and uh, uh, so you know I'm excited. I want them to do great, but but yeah, it was you know I. I once went on TV a long, long time ago, Jim, at the beginning of this, and some TV person was interviewing me and said, well, so what's so bad in an alkaline battery to, uh, that they shouldn't go in the dump? I said, well, over time, that, that ferrous, that steel metal case breaches, and the contents will spill out. And yeah, there's some micronutrients in there, but there's potassium hydroxide. And in mixed, that's just the alkalines. What about the mercury batteries, the lithium batteries, the nickel cadmium batteries, the second most dangerous metal to man? Uh, the, you know, the, the five heaviest metals worst to man are all in the recycling business. They're all battery related. So I said to this reporter after I, you know, gave him my reasons, what I just told you. I said, would you like to eat one? And I held one up in case he opened his mouth. I would have put the battery in there. And he said, no. And I said, well, either do I. And I don't want my grandkids having to eat them either or have it spoil the water table. I said, my opinion, it's insane that these go into the ground and uh, that it isn't legislated. Well, it took, it took 20, 20 years for the legislation to come along. And then we, then we started to make profit. And, uh, I guess we, 
I lose track of time. So another 19 years, ran a, a successful. I always thought we should make more money given what we do and what we handle. Lithium, lithium on site, you know, dangerous uh, uh, heavy metals and so forth. Lithium be, be the most dangerous for fire. And uh, uh, I always thought we should have made more money. But once we got going with the government program, I, I, I would say that we... We made 10 to 15% of sales was, was profit. Uh, keep in mind, we invested heavily in training. And again, just we, we think we're the best, so we, we acted accordingly and worked to try and stay the best. And, um, you know, it paid off. I, I, my heart bled that day, still bleeding that day that, uh, that we actually closed that deal. And these good people... They're, they're, they're owned and backed by BlackRock, the world's largest company. So I know there's certainly solid, solid backing there. Oh, yeah. uh, BlackRock is as big as you get. Yeah. Yep. So I'm just a cheerleader now, really, for them. And, uh, you know, I hope they get to take it further than I managed to uh, over all those years. Well, and uh, as, as, as I said, nothing but a bleeding heart now, Jim. <laughs> Yes, but you're doing so much good. We need to take a break. We will be right back in just a second. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a wonderful question, actually, Jim. Oh, my gosh. I love the opportunity to do this. Thank you, Jim. Wow, that's that's a that's a great one. You know, that is a phenomenal question. That's a great question, and and I don't have a great answer. It's that's a great question. Oh, that is such a loaded question, and that's actually a really good question. School for Startups Radio. We are back, and again, thank you so much for being with us. We're speaking with Wayne Elliott about his incredible entrepreneurial journey, especially saving the environment. Wayne, I don't know of a system in the United States where we collect those batteries at all. Do you? Hardly hardly any. These these people representing the manufacturers have have managed one way or another to to discourage cities, states that want to California just passed the legislation, Jim, on their fifth try. Now, what's wrong with this picture, please? You want to consciously do it for your environment. Good Lord, there's something like 25 million people there. That's two-thirds of what we got in all of Canada. And, and then where is their batteries than 25 million. California has almost 50 million people. Wow. So it's bigger than Canada by over a third. See? So it's unbelievable. Now, okay, so all those batteries? Holy cripes. Yeah, I just Googled it. There are 39 and a half million people in California. So 40 million people in California. That's just more than Canada by about five. Yep. So boy, oh boy, I'm telling you, uh, that's a lot of batteries get used more than ever before, Jim. There's so many battery operated devices, children's toys and not just toys, games and so forth. You know that, uh, we didn't have any of that when I was a kid, but today it's all the rage. And uh, they've never sold so many batteries. Well, there's 10 large boatloads uh, per year. Right. Take a Laker that can take 30,000 tons and fill 10 of them with little batteries. That's how much is going into the ground. 
Wow. All we did was recycle 12, 13,000 tons a year. That's the, that's the fly on the elephant's back. So, and we had a pro, we have a process that's portable. We could have it running anywhere within a year of the go date. No permitting needed. It's all, it was just a, it took years to put it together too. There was, there was five, uh, what do you want to, patents, new patents, uh, five improvements on the same original patent. So we never quit working at it and they, they just did a, a great job. The fellow that was our chief engineer these last 12 years just got a job uh, running Tesla's. He's the chief engineer at Tesla's battery plant in Reno, Nevada, uh, because of his experience with us. I'm so proud of that uh, young man, East Indian lad, and uh, he's an American citizen. I got him out of General Motors Research in Rochester, New York, and his father-in-law is my medicine man, so I'm just very close with their family. And I'm uh, so proud of him, that job he got uh, with uh, the big outfit. Uh, I'm going to get to see it in this next year when I go out there, and he's going to tour me through. But, uh, yeah, it's a long it's, it's drive, huge. Wayne. Yeah, well, I'm doing her. Don't worry. I'll be, I'll be <laughs> driving it. I, I've, I've got a plan. And, you know, but it's a growing problem, Jim. We're talking about electric vehicles now. So what an electric vehicle's got, whether it's the smallest of electric cars up to the transport trucks that they now make with them, transport truck electric vehicle battery is worth $100,000, the battery, uh, just to put things in perspective. Very expensive for the cars, we know that. Well, what that is is a whole bunch of those little ones, like what fits in your your camera, your remote controls, uh, yeah. Uh, consumer batteries, just a whole bunch of those hooked together in series. But in the case of lithium, wow, that's a, that'd be quite a fire, I can assure you, of, of, uh, of that much lithium. Lithium is something else. We once spilled a speck of it the size of a lead and a pencil, pure lithium metal, mind you, onto the floor of the, the uh, little laboratory processing area. We were, we were just finishing the research part of it before we started any production. And the tiny speck of lithium fell on the floor, a drop of sweat from the worker, very humid morning at 6 a.m., very humid, a drop of sweat lands on the speck of lithium. And by the time we got it out, using what they call lithex, it's like black baby powder, by the time we smothered it out, it had burned a hole six foot in diameter through 13 inches of concrete right to the dirt. And it was a speck. Now, that's pure lithium metal. It was. It came from a battery manufacturer in the U.S. And uh, the production rate was so low, it sounds ridiculous. Our production rate was going to be 40 pounds a day. This whole little plant set up to handle 40 pounds a day. So this is real serious stuff. I, I, I really regret that we have to, I guess, use these lithium, uh, use this reactive material in, in these batteries. Uh, there's been fire in telephones. There's been fire in waste collection centers from devices with batteries in them. And uh, uh, But anyway, that's, that's the way things have gone. There's different chemistries too, but lithium's involved in all of them. Um, they don't all have the very expensive cobalt. Uh, for example, the, the lithium ions of the lithium cobalt batteries. Cobalt's a valuable metal. But Wait, it's a shame that 
Go ahead, go Lithiums ahead. in them all. So yeah. much uh, lithium is being used uh, in that way. I see it as a safety risk, and uh, most of all. Well, that sounds like a great opportunity for America for a company like yours to go into the U.S. Maybe that's what BlackRock thinks they're going to do and get some laws in the U.S. passed, and you'll have a gold mine. Well, they, I know they're going to, to do that, and we were waiting for this California legislation ourselves and was so pleased. There was an entourage of 33 people came from California, including a senator and a congressman or congressperson. I wasn't there uh, with, with a total of 33 people, and uh, they spent a couple of days that uh, went through soup to nuts and what they were there for was to prove that exists a recycling process that could handle all this if they put it into law. Because they were told there's no, there's no process to handle this and you're better off just throwing them out. And so when they came and saw our operation, they went back and put that legislation in place. So tremendous opportunity in that business ahead. It's just depending on where you go, you've got to spend a lot of money up front to get into it and then hope the legislation and the collections and everything picks up to a point. What we did in Ontario was we did all the collecting ourselves on those 5,200 sites, but I'll never know how much we invested in that company or how much we got back out, uh, to be honest, Jim. That's uh, probably so better that years. way. Probably happier that yeah, way. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about Strauss but, for a little bit. That's my favorite, I guess. Today, you... Uh, had a heart attack when you were 35 and discovered uh, Dr. Strauss himself. Tell us that story and what happened. Tell us the Strauss story. Yeah, well, after not playing sports for 10 years and uh, eating like I still was playing and milkshakes and all the rest of it, I, uh, I had that heart attack. And... Uh, I always knew it was a heart attack because it knocked me right down, sledgehammer in the chest. And after that, I started getting all the symptoms like angina, the pinches in the chest and the leg cramps and the night sweats and the shortness of breath. And uh, then, then a year or so later, my heart went out of rhythm. I had arrhythmia. And I just lived with all that for over six years until luckily I, I was talking to a friend who just had a heart attack and he's on this Strauss and he's better and I ordered a bottle that day that very day I talked to him I was so hopeful I didn't want anybody cut me or I didn't want to take any chemical dope or anything of drugs and uh, lucky I made it that long Jeez, it was crazy but uh, anyway that changed my life taking the uh, the Strauss heart drops and, and I do mean that I, I went from I guess the, the near depression or close to it, anxiety, I, I'll never know for sure, I guess. Uh, I can tell you this, 11 weekends in a row, I stayed in my bedroom watching the History Channel, hope nobody called, hope nobody came to the door. So there was something wrong. And, uh, boy, then I got those heart drops, and Jim, honest to God, well, the first thing that happened after two weeks, the hearing returned to my left ear, which was amazing to me. I had no idea that was plaque or cholesterol involved. And then bronchial cleared. And then in, in three months, I thought I was Superman. I almost stopped sleeping and pretty much kept in that pattern. Not of as little as I got then, but not enough. 
but I'd almost stopped sleeping, started a new business. I was like a house on fire. And so they, they saved my bacon and I got to know, I got involved with them. Uh, after I knew I was, wow, I'm better. Uh, and then my dad, my mom, and so I got to know Jim Strauss and he came back to Canada with me the first time, back to Ontario, rather. He's from the West coast, came back to Ontario with me in the train and, uh, spent a month with me in my house, my family twice a year, uh, for six years. So I spent a full year with him, but it was you know, we were traveling, doing lectures, doing radio shows, a lot of talking, driving in the car, and just sitting at my kitchen table till the wee hours. And and that was the most profound experience of my life, uh, where I learned so much about our bodies, learned a lot more about nature, how everything connects, how it all works, just like in our bodies, everything connects. Um, and, uh, I never met a man that was so knowledgeable about all of that. He wasn't a doctor. He was a master herbalist. He was a PhD engineer, actually chemical engineer, but he never uh, practiced Well, he did practice it when they came out with the aspirin back in the, whatever that was, forties or fifties, he thought, Oh, they're not going to need natural medicine anymore. And he got to, I think he ran Saskatchewan hydro for a number of, number of years. And then you know, paying attention, he saw that, well, these pharmaceuticals, maybe they're not all they're cracked up to be. Nobody seems to be able to get off them once you start them, and uh, you, you have to keep taking them. So he uh, he started back up. So they've been running commercially now for 40, I think this is the 45th year. And uh, uh, I wanted to be involved because what it did for me, Jim, I wanted to, as Jim would say, scream it from the mountaintops for people to to get well as painlessly as I did, changed my life. You know, the only thing I did, the, the gospel truth, is I did see a doctor and, you know, I had the arrhythmia and everything else. Uh, I didn't take any drugs. I did prepare to die young. That's what I did do about it over those six years. And uh, crazy. Didn't, didn't, uh, didn't research other things I might have done. Honestly, didn't even think about the natural route. Uh, didn't know anything about it. And then, you know, the most profound experience was my relationship with him and the most profound thing, I guess, since it's, it saved my life then and changed my life forever. And just this past year with COVID for a third time and then myocarditis, Jim, uh, I think it's because my heart was so strong is why I survived that myocarditis. There was a 10-day period there where, you know, if you're sick enough, you ain't sure. Uh, you know what what the outcome is going to be here and if it's not for having that strong heart so i always i love the man he was uh he was whatever you want to call him like an uncle to me a, a second father big brother uh and we had some great conversations i visited him out there uh and of course he stayed a, a two months a year with me here in ontario and i i I've just been passionate since about uh, uh, helping people. I love helping people, love feeding people, but helping with the health, it was so directly rewarding for me. Uh, this is a person's well-being and health we're talking about. I, I'm just a messenger boy. I didn't make any of it. I'm not an herbalist. Uh, I'm just a messenger. And 
So it warms my heart every time somebody gets a bottle or I give them a bottle too that needs it because I know they're going to feel better like I did. And I didn't want to, I had to turn away from that 15, uh, maybe 17 years ago, 15 at least. Um, because of our other businesses, I was dedicating too much time to Strauss, traveling, doing radio. And I took over for Jim doing the lectures and the radio shows. And um, I wasn't paying enough attention to our, our business. My boys were younger. So I, uh, I actually gave the business that we had in Eastern Canada to the couple of ladies working it and to my friend who had Western Canada, still my friend, uh, uh, to take. I'd never made any money because they saved my life. I said that every nickel we make here, um, outside the, the few people that worked for us wages, of course, but every nickel that we make in profit here, we're going to give away in product. And that's what we did. And uh, um, I still give away a lot now, but, <laughs> you know, uh, that's for sure. But uh, it's just been very rewarding, uh, that whole thing. And how could, I, how could I be anything but grateful with it saving me? And I believe it's now saved my life twice, uh, Jim. So well, it sounds like precisely. Yeah. Wayne, we need to wrap up for today. Unbelievably, we've already gone 47 minutes. Uh, time flies with you for sure. Very good. Well, we'll talk about staff next time. Yes, Maybe let's we'll talk about staff time next time. Staff. All right. Well, All thank right. you, Jim. I appreciate it, Wayne, and uh, we will talk to you next week. All the best. All right. Be safe. You too. Well, we are out of time for today, but back again tomorrow. Don't worry. On tomorrow's show, we're going to talk with the authors of a book that I think should be a, a thesis for every entrepreneur. Don't wait for someone else on tomorrow's show. Thanks for being with us. Have a great day. Thank you, Wayne. And we'll be back tomorrow. Take care, everyone. Bye now.